He doesn't burn up the gold. He burns up all the impurities. And the only thing left is gold. And that's us. Hello, this is the Adventure Through the Bible podcast. My name is Matt. Joining me today is Eric. Hey there. And we've got Karen. Good morning. And we have Tracy. Morning. It is morning too, man. I'm sitting here and the sun is coming up over my neighbor's house across the street. It keeps getting in my eyes and my shade keeps going higher and higher as we're talking. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's bright too. It's, it's like it's a big ball of fire or something. I'm crazy. <laughs> <laughs> uh so it's uh it, it's been sort of a fun week in in my household we got a new car this week Ooh! no i say new car it was it's a 2013 dodge durango with 111,000 miles on it but 111,000 miles is not much for a car these days at least uh it doesn't seem to be it seems like i've bought a few lately that that have that much on them and they last for a few years so that's kind of fun but, you know, it's it's interesting to me, though, when we get something new, like a new car, how it's kind of difficult to get rid of the old one. You ever felt that way? Well, I, you know, I, t- I tend to drive mine till they die. Well, there is that. <laughs> yeah. Even then, though, it's it's there's sort of there could be kind of a melancholy feeling of watching it go. away. I remember getting rid of my first truck when I was. Oh, gosh. I mean, I guess I bought it when I was 15 and I probably had it for 10 years and when I finally sold it and it was going down the road and rods were knocking and, you know, I, I knew that somebody was probably just going to put a new engine in it and it's, and it's driving away. I was going, Oh, that was mine. You know, and it's funny. It's like leaving, you know, when you leave, if you buy a new house, I remember leaving when we first bought our new house and we were so excited to move in the new house, but then you go and you shut the door on your apartment for the last time and you look around and there's just a, it's it's a funny thing to move on to new things like that and how it's hard to let go sometimes of the old stuff. It's um and I think it depends on what order you do it in. Usually we 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 get connected with a newer thing first, and then there's a borderline desperation to get rid of the old one. Well <laughs> that's <laughs> there there is that because now we've got an extra car sitting around the house that needs to go. Actually, we've got two of them because my son's car kind of died and we're trying to need to get rid of it. Of course, we've got it. Over at my in-laws, they have uh, they have some room for it and a good place to sell it. Usually, they sell pretty quickly. But now we've got our other old one sitting here, and uh, it, it it needs to go get out of here too. But anyway, it's just I do know the feeling though. Yeah, it's just it's just it's just funny. It's funny how we get new things, but are 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 uh, reluctant to get rid of the old ones sometimes. Let's get into our discussion. Now, last week, we've been talking in mostly the book of 2 Samuel and the life of David. Now, last week, David was dealing with, it's sort of an oddity, dealing with military struggles against his son, Absalom. Now, I I think every parent has had struggles with their kids. Very few of us, I think, have military struggles with our kids where uh, they're, they're actually trying to oust us from being the ruler of a kingdom. But this oh, is... My son beat me with chess last night, and that's the closest I've come. <laughs> oh, Eric, you can't let your kid do that. I know he's twelve. I'm worried. <laughs> I've, I've actually had I've actually had a military battle with my son, and it went like this: it was me on the phone to his commanding officer, going, "Do something! You're the only one that can intervene. Do something!" Oh, well, and they did. There you there go. There you yeah, go. but it's, it's a unique thing. The scale of what David's been dealing with has been odd, given his history. The fact yeah. that he had been militarily successful and kind of without peer for most of his life. Now he's running away, and then he has a rebellion right after that, the rebellion of Sheba. So some weird stuff going on for David. It is. It is some very strange stuff, because he, he had such a strong start. And then I think we've kind of been of a consensus that he just sort of finds this status quo that he tries to hold on to and and it doesn't work out so well for him times are changing for him definitely definitely well we start with second samuel chapter 21 with it's an oddity to me what happens here this is uh there's a famine that happens it's it had less for three years and god says that it's because saul 
killed the Gibeonites. Now, I don't, I can't specifically remember, I don't specifically recall that story. So I don't know if this is the first we've heard of it. Uh, or did you guys remember anything from that from before? No, it's I didn't. It yeah. just up here. But here's a really interesting thing is that it's in the very first sentence. We've commented on this in in the last few weeks talking about David. What he didn't do, David, verse 20, chapter 21, verse 1, and David sought the face of the Lord. That is, those are not words we have read for a long time. Right. That's right. He's just David. We read David did this and David did that. And then they usually end up in disaster. But here we have David has a problem. And then immediately after they, and, you know, there was a famine and David sought the face of the Lord. Kind of like, oh, hey, um, actually, let's talk. What's going on here? Mm-hmm. I think it stands to reason, though, that when we kind of talked last week about David having that heart after God, as I think he always knows where to go. He knows where his strength lies. And I think that's just, you know, just like us today, we know where our power comes from. And sometimes we don't utilize that. We don't take it full advantage of that by, you know, having God direct our every step. Sometimes we tend to rely on self and it gets us into trouble. When I was reading this, I was thinking it took three years of famine before he went, before he sought the Lord. Uh, and then, and then immediately on the heels of that snarky thought, I thought, oh, that sounds a lot like modern society. <laughs> well, and you know, the first blush for me was wondering why it seems like the kingdom is being punished. Punished may be the wrong word, but it's the word I'm going to use for right now and we can, we can fix it or whatever. But, um, the king, the kingdom and David is having to deal with this now when this was, Saul's fault. You know what I mean? Saul's fault, yes. I think this was evening the scales of justice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that it had been sitting there for a while and not because of anybody's fault. It still needed to be made right in some in some outwardly observable way to the people who had been wronged. Mm. Yes. That's a big deal. And because I think in reading between the lines here, Saul had been rah-rah Israel, you know, kind of this nationalism. And Saul kind of went after the wrong people. He he was supposed to be defending against the Philistines, which he largely ignored as he's chasing David around. You know, more than once he's chasing David and he's, he's always says that, oh, by the way, the Philistines are like in the middle of your country. You better do something. He's like, oh, whoops. And he goes back. Well, during this time of kind of the, the way I read it, anyways, is, is that Saul is driven by nationalism, and he goes beyond the boundaries of what he's supposed to do, and he starts going after the low-hanging fruit, the Gibeonites, and he starts killing the Gibeonites. Now, if we remember back in Joshua chapter 9, the Gibeonites, as the Israelites are moving into the Promised Land, the Gibeonites show up to Joshua, and they create basically a deception. Sneak to get yeah, a sneaky deception to get themselves excused from being wiped out of the land. They create this thing like, oh, we're from a long, faraway place. You know, we want to make a treaty with you. And they trick Joshua because Joshua did not inquire of the Lord. You can read it yourself in Joshua chapter 9. Well, at that time, Joshua and the elders promised to forever spare the Gibeonites. They're to be stone cutters and wood cutters and water gatherers and stuff like this. They're to be servants, basically, but they're not to be killed. Saul incurs, and here's a word we haven't seen since Genesis in a while, blood guilt. Because he goes after the Gibeonites and he starts killing the Gibeonites. It's kind of like, yay, I'm all for Israel. And he goes after people he should not have been going after. And somehow, circling back to what Karen just said, this has created some sort of tip in the scale of justice. I find it interesting. David doesn't know what's going on. He's like, I don't get it. What's going on? The Gibeonites know. When David talks to the Gibeonites, they're not like, oh, gosh, we don't know what this could possibly be. They know, which means there's been everybody else around it who knows this wrong that has been done. And somehow, I mean, again, we're talking about this from, you know, from Colorado, in the year 2021, and our idea of justice and fairness and all this other stuff is based on 
where we live in space and time. In their space and time, this was not okay to leave undone. Seems super duper strange to us that that this would be kind of hanging in the air for this long, and that God of all would say, "No, this needs to be made right." Which to me, I I have to read this and just think there must have been there must have been a lot of people in Israel and the Gibeonites who say, "Well, is God not going to do anything about this? Like this is wrong. Isn't this going to get fixed somehow?" And here's how we parachute into the story. Exactly. And and I I think, you know, when I was initially describing, I said observable justice. And I think that that is the key. Clearly, there was an injustice, but just, injustice happens all the time and seems to pass unnoticed by the people around us. For whatever reason, this one had happened publicly and needed to be reconciled in some way publicly. And the interesting thing about the solution they come up with is that it's really it's really symbolic. Yes. It's really symbolic. Like there's no literal justice done here. It is an outward gesture for the 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 perceptual impact that justice has occurred. We made something right, but there's no literal justice happening. Yeah, and I I mean I'm just coming right out and say I kind of have a problem with the way the justice is is brought about. The Gibeonites ask for seven descendants of Saul to be handed over to them so they can hang them. And David agrees to this. He he spares Mephibosheth because he's he's promised very specifically that he's going to care for Mephibosheth. It was a promise made to Jonathan. But he takes seven other descendants, two sons, two sons of Saul, Armoni and another Mephibosheth, somebody else named Mephibosheth. And then five sons of Michael. This would have been David's wife. It sounds like five sons of hers that she had had with uh, Adriel. And I'm guessing this is the husband that Saul had given to her when he took her away from David. But he takes them, gives them to the Gibeonites, and they get hanged. And it's, I don't know, that's a... And God ex, God apparently accepts this because the, the famine ends. I, I don't know, it's just... Uh, there's a, I was a, thinking too when I was reading this, sins of a father. Yep, man. Yeah, yeah. You know how do you rationalize that with the people that you're trying to explain this to? Okay, this is what you got to do. I, I got to offer you up. I got to sacrifice you. That that was kind of hard. I, I I read it over and over because I didn't quite understand it, but it was like you said, it was accepted. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that there's a difference between saying it was accepted by God and that that was God's plan. Yes. Yeah. I think there's a difference between those two things. And we're we're kind of always hobbling along the best we can, given the situation that we have. There was a situation this last week where somebody used the phrase, well, if God had intended us to blah, blah, blah. And I'm like... There's a lot of things going on in this world that God did not intend, right? We're, right. We're, we're just, we're dealing with what we're dealing with. It's like, well, you know, if we blow a tire on the highway, we're doing 75 and we careen over and hit the median and, you know, slide the car along the side and, and uh, come to a, a rest. We've destroyed the left side of our car. It's kind of like, well, did we intend to do that? It's like, no, but that's better than being dead in oncoming traffic, mm-hmm. right? So it's kind of like a, no, that wasn't ideal, but given where we're at, here's this, it's kind of like the, the least worst thing. I don't know, it, it, is, it, is, it is a weird story. It's difficult to get this cosmic and societal and, and ethnic and nationalistic stuff all in my head, and it's... I think Karen put it best, how, how this is you know, about the only way I can make it make sense. I think this feeds into a bigger picture of how justice and reconciliation happens, because justice and reconciliation aren't necessarily the same thing. So think of it. So I, I think of it like this. I think that there are certain aspects of acceptance, forgiveness, justice and reconciliation that occur on a human level between interacting humans or groups of humans. Okay? And I think there's a different kind of those four things that happen between humans and God. 
So when, so I actually really disagree with you when you say that God accepted this. I don't think this was for God. I think this was for the groups of humans involved. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the famine was God's way of bringing David's human attention to it and saying, there is a wound in your land that needs to be healed. Go ask them what they need to feel healed. Hmm. So I don't I don't see this as a as a as a cosmic acceptance or reconciliation or justice. I see this as between humans only, which is a completely different level of everything, which is why I said observable. That goes back to that. It's like sometimes humans need outward gestures that actually aren't important in the grand scheme of things, but yet to heal rifts between humans, sometimes they need to happen. You know, I was thinking about about Michael while I was reading this, you know, and her, her plight was, I don't, a bad one, you know, because, yeah. you know, you figure she got married to David. They said he, she loved him. She uh, hid him or helped him get away from her father to be given to somebody else in marriage, to have kids, to be torn apart from that, given back to David speaking out against him and not having any children. And then she has to offer up her kids from somebody else. So, you know, I was thinking about that, that part. I was like, wow, that, that's not a good life for her. I almost hoped she wasn't alive still because that would be awful. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, it, I guess, like you said, it was kind of hard. It was just hard to read it and hard to, hard to grasp it. You know, I guess I had a, I had a discussion online you know one of those i always say you shouldn't get into and i did it anyway but you know i the the idea of things happening in the bible and like eric says all the time just because it happens doesn't mean that god that's not what god wanted you know doesn't mean it's a it's uh it's not prescribed you know but it's just recorded so it was it was it was difficult to to read that and be able to accept it from my point of view but i guess like eric said it's there's a lot of factors involved that we sitting here in colorado may not understand you know we're thousands of years later we're in a completely different part of the world we've all been raised in a different culture and um we just we see it through different eyes now and we probably would never do something like that today not for you know the corn won't grow let's find seven people you know probably probably wouldn't do that today I, I do have something though that that, that strikes me <clears throat> without us getting all into this, but it's something that we should reflect on is that are there things in our world, in our society that where maybe maybe I've wronged Tracy, okay? Let's just say that Tracy feels wrong by me. But I don't feel like it. I'm like, dude, I, I didn't do anything. Like what what do I have to do with that? Or let's say my dad did something bad, more more likely, my dad did something bad to his dad. And Tracy feels like, well, what? Well, you got to make this right. I'm like, this wasn't my fault. We should maybe be a little bit more careful to listen, to say, do you, do you really feel wrong? Do you feel hurt? And to Karen's point is like, in the cosmic sense of things, does this really actually change the balance of justice in the universe? Yeah, probably not. But to that person and to their feelings, I think we need to be careful to at least listen and acknowledge. Now, I'm not suggesting that we give up our children to be hanged as a uh, <clears throat> as a symbol for forgiveness, but 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 somewhere in here, this was important enough that God was paying attention to this. We can't ignore that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's a difficult thing, and man, this is one of the stories in the Bible that bugs me. I'll be honest about that. This but, is the one. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, but but it did catch the attention of God, and where we are, we are in Colorado, we're 2021, and what can we do with this? Instead of saying, "Well, that's an oddity of the Bible," is to say, maybe, maybe you need to listen and say, yeah. "Wow, did you? I'm really sorry. I did not know that you felt that way." And to because just because I can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. Or that somebody else doesn't feel this and the impact that it has in society and so on. It was it was significant enough that it made it into the book of Second Samuel in the Bible. 
And there's a famine that leads up to this, and there is a release of famine that's after it. So this idea that what we do here doesn't really matter, it's just us and God, I think God's a little bit more attuned in to how the injustices here, he doesn't blow it off the way we do. So I have written down on mine that I, I kind of looked at this from the aspect of forgiveness, and I've heard this somewhere. I can't tell you where I heard it from, but it always sticks with me that forgiveness isn't for the other person. It's for you, you know, and, and I look at the Gibeonites and think, you know what? Maybe that stuck with him, just kind of like what Eric was saying. That stuck with them and maybe in a way disturbed their walk where they needed this to be done almost like what Karen was saying, just to balance the scales and to help them move on. So, you know, I wonder if it was just more for them, yeah. you know, to, to, to right the wrongs that were done in the past. And, and really the forgiveness part was just for them personal there's um there's a bunch of different words for forgiveness in the various languages that are written in the bible but one of them gosh i don't i can't it's a lot of syllables and i don't remember it off the top of my head but the gist of it it's one of the most sort of profound descriptions chorizo something like that anyway um it's used a lot in the psalms and the gist of it is that you, the one who needs to be forgiven, have already been forgiven. This word, when it's used in place of the in, for the word forgiveness, means not that something has shifted on the end of the person who has been wronged, but something has shifted in your head, like you have accepted the forgiveness, right? So there's all these nuances of forgiveness that go back and forth between the humans. And that and that's kind of what I was trying to get at earlier. Like not everything is between us and God. This garbage that goes on between us as individuals, us as families, us as groups of people or societies or sides of the political aisle or whatever, like those can actually keep us from reconciling with God because we haven't reconciled with each other. There you go. And and like what is where there's a text in the New Testament that says something like, or I think it's actually in the Lord's Prayer, you know, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Yep. You know? Like it's like that's that's an actual thing. Like if if you don't forgive the other people, how's how does God forgive you? Like not only do these relationships need to be made right and healed, sometimes in invisible gestures, sometimes in very public gestures like this one, but but that of that frees us up to return our focus to where it actually belongs. So it's mm -hmm. it's healing for it's healing on all of the levels, even if the immediate situation doesn't appear to be anything like weirdly unimportant. Like, why would you do this? This has nothing to do with right and wrong. And yet yeah. it healed it healed something. And it was important enough for God to send a famine to bring David's attention to it, to correct it. Well, let's move along here. The chapter uh, ends with a, a little bit here of something we've talked about i think a couple weeks ago and um where, where some some giants in the land got killed and but the reason i bring it up again here is because it now we get a little insight into what's happening with david that maybe we didn't get before and it sounds you know like before the first time david fought a giant he was a kid and threw rocks at him you know, and this time it sounds it sounds like David goes out and he's ready to fight a giant again. And he's he needs help. He says he grew yep. faint. Somebody else who was it had to come in. Abishai came in and and had to help uh, had to help kill that kill the giant. And at this point, David's men decide that David really shouldn't be in battle anymore. Yeah. And um, something that really hasn't. It hasn't been explicit, I guess, in the text up to this point, but we have to think that at least something like 40 years have passed since uh, there, there was there was a blurb, something about when Absalom, he had been waiting to go do something. I don't remember exactly, but it, it, he had been waiting for like 40 years. So we know that we know that David has been been aging now and we're not given his age, but obviously he is not. He's not the warrior he used to be, right? And uh, so we're starting to see, we're starting to see, um, yeah, his age is starting to show. 
And I think to that point too, is that as we're getting here, uh, and, and maybe maybe even starting with chapter 21, the chronology kind of slips into a bit of a time warp here. It does. Not everything is just now, it's like, oh, and this happened immediately after this. Because there are some things that are obviously, as we move forward here, not chronological. We're just kind of, it's like the writer is like, oh, man, I'm near the end of the book. I forgot <laughs> to mention this, and I forgot to mention this, and we got to include <laughs> this, and... And so I think as we read through it, we've got to remember these things might be out of order. Yeah, Hebrew Hebrew writers did not seem to worry too much about chronology. They kind of just wanted pieces to seem like maybe they, they were interested more in themes than they were yes. uh, 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 historical chronology. So chapter 22 is largely, well, I don't know if I should say largely, I think it's completely... Yeah, it is basically a psalm of David, another something that he wrote or said or sang, but it's praise for God's deliverance. And he uh, he spends a couple of times here referring to God as his rock in verse 2, verse 32, verse 47. The Lord is my rock. I've said that I will probably point that every, out every time I see it because I think it's I think it's important to remember down the road. He talks about God as being a rock, a fortress, a deliverer, shield, a horn of my salvation, a stronghold, refuge, savior. And he says, in my distress, I called upon the Lord and he heard my voice. That's in uh, verse seven. Verse 20, he delivered me because he delighted in me. I really like that verse. He delivered me because he delighted in me. I was having a discussion with a friend last night and we were Talking about a guy that we've known for quite a while, he's closer to him than I am, far closer to him than I am. I'm just more acquaintance. But the idea, sometimes people have the idea that God won't accept them. And it's really sad because, like David is saying here, God delights in him. So there was one text that jumped out at me, then that was verse 21. And it reminded me of a couple of other places in the Bible. It says, the Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. According mm -hmm. to the cleanness of my hands, he has rewarded me. So there, that reminded me of two things. In Revelation, it talks about Jesus coming back at the end of the world, and he brings a reward with him to give everyone according to their works. Right? So yep. the actions of our hands, right? The the cleanness of our hands makes a difference from now until the end of time. But the other thing that it reminded me is, I think it's Psalm 106. Hang on. I wasn't quite flipped to it yet when you. So you weren't ready when you raised your hand. Shut up. I was halfway through my thought. <laughs> but, but it says, um, it says, you have not dealt with me according to my, ah, where is it? I miss my old Bible because I had stuff marked. I still haven't marked everything in this new one. We're, this we're getting there. Trying. But but I get okay. where you're going, Karen, because he, David bounces back and forth between like, I did so good, and then you rewarded yeah. me. And then he says, thank goodness you didn't give me what I deserved. Yes. You, you rewarded me based on your goodness. Oh, here it is. Okay, it is it is Psalm 104. The Lord is merciful and gracious, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in mercy. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us to, according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame... He remembers that we are dust, right? So in a salvation way, we're on grace. And yes. yet on some level, there's a reward for the cleanness of our hands. Even at the second coming, there's a reward according to our deeds. Yes. It's, it's a very nice, it's a very nice hybrid on God's part to give us both of those things. <laughs> Yeah, 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 it's there. And if when if one tries to make the the text in the Bible and the whole thing the exclusive one or the other, it just doesn't work because they're both mm -hmm. there. Verses twenty. <clears throat> excuse me. Let me try that again. Verses twenty six <laughs> through twenty eight sounded familiar to me, and I could not find it offhand. Uh, 
But there's another spot earlier in something we've already read way back. Maybe it was Genesis, Exodus. I don't remember. But it sounded like God had described himself this way, where he said, David is saying, with a merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. And with the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. You will have you will save the humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty that you may bring them down. It seemed to me like God described himself that way in the past. I, I couldn't find it. I, I remember future, reading that's it. That's in the Beatitudes. Well, it's there too. I was thinking of another time. It was like when God was talking about his name, and then he just specifically went into this 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 um this description of himself. Right. This is this is very much it's it, it yeah, I guess my point though is this is very much a description of God's character. This is yeah. very much who God is. Yeah. Um I bet it's Deuteronomy within the first six first chapters, I bet you. That could be. I don't yeah, <laughs> I don't remember. I I was surprised that there wasn't a there wasn't a note in my Bible for it when I came across it because I know I'm thinking I know I've read this before. Yeah. It's but, a theme. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, but yeah, that's, you know, this is the way, this is the way God thought of him or thinks of himself. This is the way David thought of him. And uh, it just pointed out, it's, it, it stepped out to me or it uh, stuck out to me. He talks about God being his lamp and, you know, the idea that, that uh, God lights our way comes out of that. And uh, what is, uh, what, it's a Psalm, right? Thy word is a lamp to my feet. And yes. It, yeah. I'll head into my path. Mm-hmm. It was a, it was a song. Us, us '80s kids remember it from uh, from uh, uh, what was her name? Um, Amy Grant. Amy Grant. Yep, Amy Grant. <laughs> that was. I mean, that was like super big time popular for '80s Christian kids. And uh, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And uh, we 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 learned that one and probably listened to it ad nauseum. <laughs> Things that stuck out to me again, verse thirty-one: the Lord. Or excuse me, the word of the Lord is proven. Uh, 32, who is God except the Lord? Verse 40, you have armed me with strength for the battle. And in a lot of ways, this is literal in David's case, literal battles, little literal physical battles. And God has been there helping David all along the way. And so this is the perspective that David is having at this point in his life after He seems to still have an appreciation for all the things that God has done for him in the past. And and even though God kind of, or not God, but even though David kind of gets complacent, it seems, in his older age, and maybe complacent is the wrong word, but uh, reluctant to to move into action, he still still has an appreciation for where he is. Verse 37, as someone who has broken both of their feet before and they don't behave properly, verse 37 stood out to me. You provide a broad path for my feet so that my ankles do not give way. Mm. <laughs> May I carry that text with me everywhere. Right. <laughs> Never broken a foot. That doesn't sound fun. It's not. <laughs> I don't, I don't yeah, Eric knows about that. Yep. <clears throat> Pretty curious. So chapter 23, now we talked about the chronology being all screwed up here. 23, I honestly, but when I was putting my notes down, I thought about putting it in the back and I was kind of, it's like, why did the writer put this here? I don't, I don't know. Karen, was that your hand again? Yes. Okay. So you didn't see my hand before when you were talking about the chronology thing. So I skipped it, but since you're back to it, it bothers me that the Hebrew writers do not follow my common sense flow of things, which is Mm -hmm. chronological. So I went back and I looked up, it's in second Samuel chapter five, that David is anointed king. So I looked in my timeline Bible, and that is in B.C. 1048. Okay, 1048. So then if you go to 2 Samuel chapter uh, 21 in verse 15, where it starts off, the Philistines had yet to, had yet, where the Philistines are coming against Israel again, and David goes down to fight them. That is 30 years later. That is in 1018. So, yes, maybe the chapters have gone up and down in the actual timeline, but that's where that was in that line. So, 30 years later, so David, I guess, is probably in his 60s at that point. Sounds plausible. But, yeah, so chapter 23, I mean, the title right off the bat is David's Last Words. And even as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, this 
why is this here? Because <laughs> you, you flip a page and well, David, David takes this census and you flip another page and there's a judgment on David's sin and you and you flip a few more pages. I mean, you get into the whole next book in First Kings before before David is dead. Like, so why is this here? I don't know. I don't really know. But it is. And so for some reason, the writer decided to put this here. But, so, but, but chapter 23 is recorded as being David's last words, even though this is clearly not the end of David for, for our purposes. But uh, the things that he talks about here, what sort of things stood out to you guys in what is meant to be kind of his final thoughts? You know, I don't know that this is pertinent to exactly this, but it's a theme that shows up once in a while that a friend of mine, she works for uh, Adventist World Radio. Her name is Cami Ootman. She, uh, I knew her way back in the day. I know her, or I knew her. Yeah, so she, uh, she, she did a message where she said, I don't want to get this wrong, but think about this thematically, is that it's not the wicked who burn forever, it's the righteous. And I was like, wait, what? She, and she pointed out that every time the, the Lord shows up in his full brightness, wicked is consumed. They don't burn forever. You, you can look at and I could, I've got 50 texts of this uh, written down, is that the wicked are consumed. They're gone like ashes. They're ashes under our feet. They're like Sodom and Gomorrah. They are gone. Now, their smoke rises forever, sure, but they are gone, consumed, done. But when God shows up, he's always flaming. He's always like just in, in, back in uh, in chapter twenty two, verses eleven to thirteen. He rode a cherub and flew. Okay, we, yeah. we were talking before we started this whole thing. Mm-hmm. How our context today is just so out of whack with with God's perspective. Cherubs now are kind of like little little ceramic figurines. They're delicate. They're fat. They're babies. But no, this is like God riding on a flaming dragster right and that's a cherub it's like not what we think of at all and then it skips ahead out of the brightness before him coals and fire flamed forth and the wicked are burned up to, to skip forward to 23 uh seven it says that the uh now again here it says it's, it's six the worthless men like thorns that are thrown away and we see thorns as a metaphor in the new testament also they are burned they're put under the pot they're burned up they're gone and it says they are utterly consumed with fire well god doesn't cease to be fire ever he i mean it Mm. says in the new jerusalem there won't even be sun because god will be so bright that the planet won't even need a sun and yet we're living in that same city with him and we are not consumed it's it's actually think about this that that he's so bright that it goes right through us. It's like all the wickedness, all the, we we see this as a theme in Psalms too, is that God burns out the wickedness, like a a gold refining his gold, right? He doesn't burn up the gold. He burns up all the impurities. And the only thing left is gold. And that's us, is that every, all the wickedness is consumed out of us. We don't have any more of that in us and we're in God's presence. If you go back to Moses. God says, you can't even look at me, man. Like, if you look at me with your eyes and you see my face, you, you'll you be just, you can't handle it. You'll be destroyed. And so God covers Moses' eyes, and, and Moses gets to see God's back. And God's back somehow shines into Moses with such intensity that Moses glows, like a glow-in-the-dark frisbee. And he glows so bright that he freaks out. Forty days later, he freaks out all the people in Israel. They're like, whoa, dude, like, cover up. Like, we can't, this is supernatural. We can't handle this. And I just find it interesting. That's a theme that kind of comes through here, is that David may come and go, and David deals with his issues. God doesn't change. He's holy. He's bright. He stands for justice. He's always, he's always there, and he's always right. And contrast that with the Greek and Roman gods, who they're fickle, they come and they go, they get angry, they get petty, they take revenge on people. David never casts God in that light. Moses doesn't. We don't see, we don't see that elsewhere. And I think that it would be worth noting 
that the God that we see revealed in the Bible is not like the gods that we see revealed in Norse mythology or in Greek mythology. There's just there's a really strong difference between the two of those. And sometimes we project those other mistaken ideas onto the God who reveals himself in the Bible. Anyways, that was a long detour, but I was reminded by that of a couple things uh, that David talked about here. Yeah, there was it was an interesting little blurb of thoughts that he had there. You know, the things that stuck out to me, one of them, well, again, he talks about God being a rock. I mean, he talks about the Spirit of the Lord, God of Israel, rock of Israel. Uh, verse three, he who rules over men must be just. I wish more of our, I wish more, more politicians would remember that these days. Yeah. And verse five, what did verse five say? Let me read it. Although my, although my house is not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant. And he's talking about, um, oh, he's talking about how, uh, somebody who's in who's ruling should be uh, talks about in the fear of God and they're like the light of the morning yeah. without clouds and you know this this really pleasant it's like a it's like a pleasant experience something to 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 envision and but David goes but my house isn't like that uh, but even the, even though my house isn't like that God has still made a covenant with me. And he says, or, and it, it's ordered in all things and secure. So David, David is recognizing how how he's recognizing God is a God of order and 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 security. And uh, it's he's it's not a, it's not chaotic. He's not chaotic. He's he's not arbitrary. He's uh, he's got a plan, and he's made in this case he's made David a part of it. And even even though David's hasn't been perfect. Uh, God has still worked with him. Well, there's some talk here again about David's mighty men. We've talked about them before. Uh, once again, we don't get to know who the three are. There's all kinds of talk about this guy was amazing, but he wasn't as good as the three. And we oh, never do. They, they mention him. Here's here's Eleazar, the son of Dodo, is one of them. Yeah. We do hear him. We heard about him before. Mm-hmm. And there's, uh, yeah. And we have Shama. And then, I think you're right, maybe the third one, now we have Abishai, who does this amazing stuff. It's kind of like, it's really weird. I agree with you, Matt. It's like, Abishai did, oh, this is uh, verse 19, he did all these amazing things. He wasn't as good as the three, though. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, I know. It's, it's, just, it's just so funny. It's like, if they were so good, let's hear about them. I want to know what they did, you know? I mean, we I do know, know the because... The three are the ones who went, busted through the Philistine camp, got the water for David that David wouldn't drink then because he felt bad about these guys doing this goofy thing for him just because they liked him so much, I guess, or something. But but um, we we just don't – we don't – we know they were great, but we just don't no, hear much about them. I don't know that that was the three. It just says three of the 30 came to David at the Cave of Adullam. No, you're right. You're right. Um, yep, the thing that, that cracked me up, and this this is just my own weird little sense of humor, was the very last verse of chapter 23 ends with, there were 37 in all, right? So they're called like, like the 30. There's 37 of them. And all I could think is, oh, whoever named the Hundred Years War lived even then. Good. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Good. <laughs> well, chapter 24... At it at it at the very at the first, and I think way back when I think I asked the question of why this was such a big deal, because there have been times when God said, Go out and count the people. And here David says, Go out and count the people. And the very first the ver the first word is is the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. And it's it's like this is um God does not like this. This happens. So when we we're talking in Second Samuel twenty four verse one, it says the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. First Chronicles chapter twenty one verse one says, "Now Satan, so boy, I can speak. I really can. Now Satan <laughs> stood up against Israel. So this yeah. is viewed as being a very evil thing happening here that has happened before, but been." I don't know, necessary or accepted or whatever, but this time it's not. And 
I don't know. The text isn't really explicit about why. I guess I sort You're... of infer that that David is acting. Well, he's obviously acting in a way he shouldn't. Uh, uh, Eric, go ahead. Okay. So yes, I struggled with that too. Like, what's the big deal? Because Israel was numbered before we ran through this as they were doing Exodus. David here wants to know how many soldiers he has. That's mm-hmm. the core. That's the core thing. Yeah. He's basically, it's like, okay, we're a pretty awesome nation. And I just want to know just how awesome we are. How much could we do with what we've got? It's kind of like one of my kids, like, you know, we go somewhere, they're, they're, they're older now, but they used to ask, and they're like, how much money do I have to spend? They want to know just how much they've got and what they can do with it. And I think David is headed here with his nationalism, and he wants to know how strong he is. Mm. And that's where I think he's headed off the rails. So it went from God saying, I want you to find out how strong you are so that you know what you can do, to now David is just going, I want to know how strong I am so I know what I can do. Well, what whatever the situation is from our perspective, we may not understand it, but Joab, in that time and place, understood it because in yep. First Chronicles 21, at the very end of verse 3, where he gives his spiel to David, like, David, why are you doing this? He ends it with, you know, why does my Lord want to do this? Why should he bring guilt on Israel? So whatever is happening is so obvious that even Joab, who I don't think is a tremendously spiritually inclined human being, can see it and calls it out for exactly what it is and says, does this seem like a good idea to you? I don't know if this is a good idea. You know, I think I look at it, too, as, as once again, being one of those self kind of things. It's like, how strong is my army? How many people do I have? How how does this shape the ability of me going out and conquering other places where usually that wasn't the case to go out and and advance his his land, I think, um, at this point. And I think that's what before it was always, you know, God, what do I do? You'll always go before me. You're going to be my rock, my foundation, the whole deal. And at this point, now he's looking at his military might. So I think that's where the self once again gets caught up in this. And this was just strictly for David. It had nothing to do with with God at all. And I think that was the problem. And once again, it you know, would it have been different i think it would have been a total 180 if we would have read in the beginning of 24 now god now david inquired of the lord you know um once again i think this was just him going off on his own devices again yeah and that sort of makes sense like i was saying it was it went from understand what you know god asking him to do something and saying i want you to understand i want you to understand how you're going to be capable and now uh it's more of a pride thing it's more of a, I want to see how strong I am. I want to, I want to gloat a bit. And when we look at major battles, it's always that God went before them and he didn't need a big number. He could do it with right. minimal men. He could do it with 200. He could do it with uh, 300 men. He could, you know, the valiant or the 37, you know, we have those small numbers because it was always about God. You know what? Yes. I will make your, your footsteps sound like legions of armies. It's like, he didn't need all those people. And I think it was just relying solely on God. And now David is going to military might. And how many men do I have? Well, he, he gets Joab to go out and, and count. And, uh, well, Chronicles first Chronicles kind of sounds like Joe Joab decides he, he does it, but doesn't do it completely. He says he didn't count Benjamin and Levi. And he says, because the word, the King's word was abominable, abominable to him. But uh, the numbers and the numbers are a little different in Chronicles versus Samuel. Let's see here. It says that there were one million one hundred thousand in Israel and four hundred seventy thousand in Judah. That's for Chronicles. Where then you get in Samuel, it says there were eight hundred thousand in Israel and five hundred thousand in Judah. And but, so the numbers don't quite add up, or don't. So I. But I mean, I'm remembering that. Those two books were written quite a ways apart from each other, and um, they're they're close. So I don't I don't know why that why we have such a discrepancy there, but just a little piece of I don't know interest, but 
maybe not terribly <laughs> important, but, uh, but yeah, interesting that Joab kind of does it, but doesn't do it completely because he just doesn't like what David is doing. So whatever reason it's, it's bad. This, this, this is not supposed to happen. I think it goes back to our earlier thing with the Gibeonites. There's more going on here than we see from where we are because David's called on it. Gad, the uh, seer, shows up with a message from God and says, David, you shouldn't have done this. You know you shouldn't do this. You're going to be punished. And this is, so the discussion is actually a kind of a, a merge of Second uh, Samuel 24 and First Chronicles 21. They're on the same story. And God says, you're going to be punished. Not only David, but this goes back to a national punishment. The people are punished. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. this is just David who does this. Now, David shows up and says, well, I'm the only one who's done anything. But if we could learn anything, that, that God is, he is just. And so somehow the people within Israel receive a portion of this punishment as well. And I could suspect a national pride maybe in their strength. Kind of, yes. That, it, it, that would be my guess also, that that kind of shows through. So David's given these three choices. You can have a famine in your land for, what is it, three years? Seven. Mm-hmm. Seven. Okay. Wow. Okay, so he can have a famine, or he can run away from his enemies for a number of months. I think it was three months. Or he could have a pestilence, uh, some sort of supernatural outbreak uh, of, of uh, destruction. And he basically he doesn't choose, except he says, oh, just let me... I'll just put myself in God's hands, but not man's hands. And uh, this pestilence happens. Again, see this again and again. One angel shows up here. And when God shows up to get something done, I mean, it is way outside our scale and scope of how he can get this done. He gets this done in a hurry with one angel. Mm. Uh, Pestilence and a... uh, 70,000 men, it says, fell in Israel. And yeah, in three days of plague is what it says. Yeah, Three days is, and 70,000 people die. Yeah, I don't, this is something beyond what we know about. It was reminding me, well, I think there was talked about angel of death here, which is, we've heard that back yep. in the Exodus story going through Egypt. And he shows up again as the angel when he shows up against like the, the armies of Sennacherib. He kills more than this in one night, mm. silently. So this is, this is not to be trifled with. And then the angel apparently is still there. He's like hovering over Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And David sees him and prays. And I just, to me, this is like a, this is a, is a, is a wild, like, whoa, kind of no special effects, but people see it. They know what's going on. They have the sacrifices. David prays that it stops. It does stop. We have uh, a threshing floor that's identified with a different name in each of the different books and the amount that's paid for it. But they basically the plague stops. This threshing floor then becomes a place where David builds an altar, which is interesting because this becomes the site of the temple in Jerusalem. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. This very site becomes the site of the temple in Jerusalem. Wow. Yeah, it's based on intercessory. Think about the symbolism of that, is that they're all about to be destroyed. David prays and says, no, don't destroy us. We will offer a sacrifice, which stands for the perfect Lamb of God, mm-hmm. a sacrifice. And this whole thing happens in the exact same spot in the temple in Israel that Jesus later shows up in. There's a lot going on here. Yeah, wow. No, that... That is, that's cool. I had, I did not realize that. And that's, um, that, that really, that adds a lot to that story now too, of, uh, that being the, being the chosen spot. And especially when we get in the next chapter where David is starting to think about building a temple. Yeah. Hmm. That is fascinating. So chapter 22, then it says David prepares to build the temple, uh, and it talks about, you know, all the things that he's able to gather. You know, he's got masons to cut stones, iron for nails and joints. It says bronze beyond measure, cedar trees, 
from the Sidonians and Tyre. But uh, he talks about he he's up. We've already we already know that David is not going to build the temple. But he talks about how Solomon is inexperienced, and I will make preparations for it. This had me thinking of how a father ought to be towards their children and trying to set them up for success. Yeah. You know, if you if you're a parent, not just a father, I guess any parent, but if you're a if you're a parent and you're not making some effort to set your kids up to be able to succeed down the road, I think maybe you're not acting as a acting well as a parent. Uh, but uh, David is setting this all up so that Solomon will be able to take off with it and and make something of it. But the reason that David isn't going to get to well, go ahead, Eric. Uh, no, I just yeah. I want you to go where you go and then come back to me because I think okay. they're related. Okay. Well, the reason that David isn't getting to build this is because God has said specifically he said, "You shall not build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight." And I think that's interesting. We've talked about how David had a David had a role. God set David up to do a particular thing, and David succeeded in that. And when David wanted to do more, God said, no, you're not going to be the right guy for this because uh, because of um, because of your role, which is not to say that David did anything wrong. He's just he's his it's not where his skill set is, I guess. Yeah, that's that struck me as a really powerful. I don't know. I felt that in the gut is that David had wanted to do this for God, like, his whole life. Like, this is the thing. Like, David's like, oh, more than anything, I want to do this. And God says, it's not for you. Mm -hmm. And it'll be for someone else to, to carry this on. I don't know if any of you all have experienced this, but I know I have. It's a dream of, like, I want to do this, and I want to do this for God. And I really, really want to do this, and I think I would be good at it. And God says, that's not for you. Somebody else gets to do that. Mm -hmm. And just the... Uh, I've experienced it. And, and David is... David deals with this very graciously. And he, he says to Saul... I think some of the coolest words of a parent to a child is in uh, 1 Chronicles 22, uh, verse 12 through 12 and 13, is... He accepts this word that he doesn't get to do it. Somebody else gets to do it. And instead of being bitter or saying, if I don't get to do it, nobody gets to do it. He, he doesn't do that. He's, he's setting Solomon up, like you said, David. And he says, only may the Lord grant you discretion and understanding what he gives you charge over Israel, that you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will prosper if you are careful to observe the statutes and rules that the Lord commanded Moses for Israel. This is just basically he's repeating Deuteronomy. Be strong and courageous. Fear not. Do not be dismayed. That's a quote straight out of the very beginning of Joshua. 1-7. Yeah. It's just, it's so easy for us to be like, I wanted to do this thing. And it's like, it's not for you. It's for somebody else. And to be gracious and say, well, all right. How will I help enable you to do the thing that uh, that God needs done? You know, I think the the key phrase in there, and it's it's the hardest part, is the I, yeah. the I in all of it, where you, you know, the human part of it, you want to be the master of your own domain and and forge your own path, and I think this is going to be great for me. And that might not be what the Lord has in store for you. And I, I'm, I was reading this wondering, you know, David had all these great accolades his entire life. You know, even in the beginning where David slays 10,000, Saul slays 1,000. He was, he was lifted up for, in, for all of Israel at all times. He was great at what he did of being a, a military person and let's just call it a killer of men. That's what he excelled at. And all of his country knew that, but he wanted something more. And I think it was that I phrase, I want to do this for the Lord. And the Lord was like, this is what your job was. And you did it good. 
I don't need you. I have I have that in store for someone else. And I think that's the hardest part of is laying down self and and taking that. And he took it gracefully, you know, and graciously. But that's what's the hardest part is that, you know, that might not be God's plan for you. But mm-hmm. I think it's always caught in that I phrase because we we tend to feel like we know what's best for us. And I think it's that humility and faith that, you know, we can take that and say, you know what, maybe that wasn't for me. Maybe God has another plan for me. Yeah, in uh, verse um, 18, it kind of struck out to me what we're talking about here. It says, he's talking to the leaders of Israel says, is not the Lord your God with you? And has he not given you rest on every side? For he has given the inhabitants, the inhabitants of the land into my hand and the land is subdued before the Lord and before his people. So there's going to be peace now because of what, because of David's actions, all the fighting that David had to go through now lends itself, lends relative peace to the people coming after and, with with Solomon specifically, and there was something else here about Solomon in verse nine that I hadn't realized before. God is the one who named Solomon. Did you see that? It made me wonder what his name was before. He was given a name. It showed up somewhere, and we never saw it after that. His I mother. Thought, named- yeah, I was gonna say I, th- I thought Bathsheba named him something else, but nobody ever called him that. Right. Yeah, we commented on that. I don't remember what it was, mm-hmm. but. Apparently, apparently, God is the one who gave him the name Solomon, which means peaceful. And so that, I thought that was interesting how how he had he, David is relating to that. Well, I guess he's relating to Solomon that God told him he was going to have a son, and he was going to name him. And it just it had me thinking of of uh, the the story of Jesus's birth, where you know you're going to have a name, have a son, you're going to name him Jesus. That um that this this announcement of a son, this leader, and God. God gives him his name. I but, think it's called S H L O M O. Sholomo was his King Solomon's other name that King David and Bathsheba named him. See, and that's weird. I'm looking back in Samuel sec- 12, Samuel. 24, and 25. Yeah. Mine just says Solomon. Second Samuel 12. I'm going to look now. Well, we can find it. It was a totally different name somewhere. This is, hmm. Oh, oh! I know what it is. It's in verse Jedediah. 25. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedediah. Yeah, we talked about that. Jedediah. Yeah. That's interesting. And I didn't look to see what Jedediah means. But, um, but, but yeah, so all of this, all of this is because Dave, David did his job. And he has, because of that, he has set Solomon up to be able to build the temple, to be able to have. Uh, a, a kingdom that is going to live in relative peace. And uh, we have all this prosperity that's happening. We have abundant resources. One job is going to be able to happen because the other job did happen. And it's, it's, uh, it is a lesson to us, like kind of like you were saying there, uh, Eric, and where we may want more. And I guess you were saying it too, Tracy. We may, we may want more, but that may not be what God has uh, in store for us because we're not the best person to do that. And it would be good for us to be able to accept that, to be able to. And it could be hard. It could be hard because we, we have aspirations. And, you know, it's like, well, why would I have these aspirations if I maybe didn't have the ability? But, um, I don't know. I guess a lot of people have had aspirations to do things, and then and then they. If you watch any of the uh, uh, shows like oh, I don't know, American Idol or things like that, you know, and you get people that are like, oh, I just I want to be a famous singer, and well, no, nah, you can't sing, so there's a problem. But, um, you know, uh, and you know what? I I suspect David might have been able to build a pretty decent temple, but I think there would have been a stigma, maybe on the temple then by being built by a warrior, because that's not. That's not what the temple was about. It, it was the temple's about it, it, it's about reconciliation, and it's about oh, what was the word you used here, while Eric? Uh, you know, redemption, um, sub, you know, the substitution of of, of yeah. mediation. Mediation. God. That's the word. That's the word. Because it's that's about, kind of how this starts. It's like there's destruction headed towards people. 
And there's a sacrifice made that stops that. And that is just like, we can't miss the symbolism of that. That's a big deal. Mm-hmm. You know, it goes back to, it goes back to Adam and Eve being, uh, losing the garden. And one of the first things that happens afterwards is a sacrifice. You know, animals die and we have Israel leaving Egypt and all these terrible things are happening. The angel, the angel, the, the the destroying angel is headed. We see these themes. We think the Bible is just made up of all these random things. Well, you know, the more we read it, the more we look at it, the more we realize, wow, man, there's these themes. Is God shows up to save people. Wow, we got Noah, you know, and the ark. We've got destruction. But at the same time, we have the option for salvation should we choose it. That is uh, that is a that's that's really a great way to uh, I guess kind of end our discussion today, unless somebody has final thoughts, but, um, you know, the, the mediation, the, the, and yeah, that symbolism of where that temple is going to get built. That's fat. That's just, that's just fascinating. me. I got to think about that for a little while. It's going to be on my mind all day now, but, um, uh, but, uh, where things are, things are starting to go in a di- different direction here slightly where there's been all this fighting and, and stuff, and it's not like Israel's you know peaceful forever, but it is going to be a different. It's going to be a different story with Solomon uh, going forward. And this isn't the this isn't the last we're going to hear of David for a bit. But but uh, yeah, it does sort of start a new new chapter, so to speak, in in the Bible going forward. Next week we will finish the book of First Chronicles. I think we're largely going to kind of skim through 23 through 27 because that's a lot of names listed. But we'll finish the book of First Chronicles, so that'll be through chapter 29. And we are going to get into the book of First Kings then, chapters 1 and 2, which will... Let me see. Where does that take us? Um, well, I don't have my Bible turned there right now. But uh, I think it gets us into some of the beginning of of Solomon's reign or more more towards the end of David's reign and and getting closer to the beginning of Solomon's reign. While you are waiting for that, while you're reading ahead on that, you can reach us at attbpodcast at theadventure.org You can search us up on Facebook and please be sure that you share the podcast so that others can have the experience that you've had and make sure that you subscribe so that we reach you in your feed each and every week. We look forward to talking to you again next week. Thanks for listening. (music) 